and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D is joining me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. This week we've got some new Panasonic announcements, as well as some interesting iPhone cases. But first, Mitch, what have you been up to, man? Hey, DJ. It's Planet 5D Day. At... No, it's not. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I've been busy this week starting a new business. Well, it's been going on for several weeks, but uh, we're just sort of launching it sort of like now-ish this week, which has nothing to do with DSLRs or filmmaking or anything else at this point. It's a purely how do you start your business kind of stuff. So it's it's been stressing me out. And so I haven't I haven't spent a whole lot of time working on filmmaking stuff this week. But oh well I'm still running the gamut of editing. Um, I just sent my final edit with motion graphics and everything over to the producer, so hopefully that it gets approved, and then next week I start on DVD extras and Blu-ray extras, so, oh, I hate building menu systems, but you gotta do what you gotta do. On that note... You've cleaned up your office, and it looks really awesome. Oh, yeah. If you look around now, um, I've Ikea'd the heck out of this room. I've got boxes <laughs> for my stuff. My lenses are starting to slowly get organized. Um, I still, like, I have my green screen back there, but it's just shoved in the corner. I don't I don't have enough room to hang I, a green I screen right now. So, and it's wrinkling it up, and it's that expensive uh, foam-type green screen, so I'm kind of ruining it by leaving it out Uh-oh. like that. But what do you do? You know, if you don't have enough space to hang it, then it's just going to, I don't know, maybe if somebody has any ideas on ways to get wrinkles out of green screens, I would love to hear them. I've used some of the sprays. I've try- You can't iron this stuff because it's made out of uh, some sort of, like, plastic oh. material. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, just uh, it, it's really expensive stuff, so it kind of sucks to let it go to waste like that. So what are you doing? Fix it. <laughs> Well, hang it up. Uh, yeah, what do I do? I put a green screen all the way across this wall here. You know, I mean, sure. My building is only four weeks away from being completed behind the house, and then I will have an extra two thousand square feet. At which point, the photo studio and video studio will be back up to snuff again. Until then, I. So you're gonna move all this out there? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Another um, move in between. <laughs> so you just like the move, don't you? The secret here is. Um, we're building an entire house behind the house to hook onto the house. And uh, <laughs> so once that's done, I'll have a 1,200-square-foot studio. Uh, my wife will have an extra like room for her stuff, and then we'll have a three-stall garage. And uh, that's all going to the back. And then after that, I'll be able to set up my green screens again, do full production again, have everything in-house. I won't have to rent any space. And that's really nice. And it's yeah. it was easier to do that than it was to try and find a building that m- met our needs. Uh, you know, right now in the Portland area, things are moving pretty fast. So it's kind of hard to buy a big building at a reasonable price. It's actually cheaper to build. Cool. Yeah, that's so all inside baseball. That. But yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And you did it very fast. Most people, most people would think about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. No, if I just pulled the trigger, bam. I, you know, I had 4,000 square feet before. I would like to get somewhere close to that soon in the future. And if I'm lucky, I'll at least get halfway there. Are you filming the whole thing so that we can have a behind the scenes of the building of the DJ studio? Yeah, I'm actually, I've got a time lapse set up for the studio going up. Unfortunately, this phase will only be the building and the concrete. And then I will have to save a little bit of money for the electrical and the drywall. So <laughs> it'll be one piece at a time. But yeah, you'll definitely right. be able to see 
as things are coming together. What kind of gear are you using for the time lapse? Oh, I've just got a couple of GoPros set up with uh, batteries, and like every time the guys show up, I just plug them into a USB cord out in the backyard and uh, <laughs> let it go. <laughs> Perfect. See, yeah. it works. 128 gig uh, Samsung uh, micro SD cards on sale for 68 bucks on Amazon. Wow. Well worth it wow. if you're trying to do an extremely long time lapse. Uh, also, uh, for those of you getting more fancy, the uh, GH4 has built-in time lapse features, which is pretty nice and handy to use if you're into doing time lapse stuff. But that's enough about the build of my house. <laughs> On to the news. Time for the news. All right, first up, we've got some camera announcements from Panasonic here. The one we've talked about in the past, and I kind of botched this last time I talked about, the Panasonic GX8. I got this confused with the L series versus the GX series. This guy is a interchangeable lens micro four-thirds camera. It's kind of meant to sit in between the GH4 and the G series in general. So it's like it's it's like a 1,200 or... What no two thousand? No, okay. did I? I botched it again, man. It's twelve hundred dollars. So the GH four is sixteen hundred dollars. This guy's twelve hundred dollars, and I wrote two thousand in the show notes because I wanted to just throw myself completely off my game here. And then yeah. below that is the G seven, which is like a nine hundred or eight hundred and fifty dollar camera. So this is the next level up. It's got a little bit more styling. It's got a few more four K features. Uh, we've got thirty frames per second as well as twenty four frames per second. But there's there's some interesting stuff to this that we'll cover as soon as we talk about the other Panasonic camera. First, Mitch, what do you think about this guy? Well, I think what they need to do is to put out a roadmap that is very obvious that we can see exactly where all these things, all these things fit. Because I, like you, I'm getting really confused. They've got so many cameras. And, you know, we knock Canon because Canon doesn't have six million cameras, but at the same time, it's fairly clear as to which ones are currently active and maybe maybe the smaller ranges like if you get into the power shots and stuff like that it gets really confusing but well the labels partially on these, although i don't spend go ahead uh the labels on these are a little confusing because you have several that have g in the title but right. G for one is not, you know, the GX makes it a different one gh4 you know the h makes it a different one and I get uh -huh. all these labels like wrapped around in my head and suddenly I, I don't know where I'm at anymore. And I'm looking online right now for a roadmap for Panasonic and the ones I'm finding have hundreds of items on it and it's probably exactly. not right. very easy to understand. And, and, and that's, that's the problem that we keep running into, frankly. Uh, you know, if we did a new, I don't know, uh, uh, a roundup page or some kind of thing for each camera that came out, people would be really confused. I'm really confused because there are so many cameras coming out right now and they're, they're sort of incremental upgrades, right? They're not, they're not jumping out up and down exciting. Some of them, some of them are, but some of them just seem to be incremental upgrades. And I get really tired of seeing all those. I mean, Canon does the same thing with the uh, TI line, the T1, T5, yeah. You know, they put out a new one of those every year, and they're they're very much incremental upgrades. And maybe the consumers care, but I don't care. 
Well, the the frustrating thing is with especially with Panasonic, it, and it's it's also a benefit is that you get a new camera, you know, pretty much every year or three or four new cameras every year. So you always have something new to to go to if you want to move up the chain. But then it's like, okay, wait a minute. Like with Sony, you look at it and you've got you've got your RX10 for example, and you're looking at that and you're like, okay, wait a minute. What's the difference between this and the next one? Is it enough right. of a you know an increase in quality or whatever? Uh, oh, they just added 4K to this. Do do I need 4K? Is that something that I should spend 1,200 bucks to move up the line to? Right. You know, what I don't know. But anyway, I, I understand. I understand from the camera manufacturer's viewpoint that they've got to be coming out with new stuff, right? Because like Canon, we're bashing Canon because there hasn't been anything really sexy, new, exciting. But at the same time, if you come out with too much, it kind of just a yawn. Now, things to note about the uh, GX8 is uh, basically we've got an OLED screen as well as a very nice tilt OLED viewfinder. And the styling kind of puts it into a rangefinder-looking camera. It is very classy in design. It looks like Panasonic's really done a good job making this look sexy. And actually, I'm going to share the screenshot right here. I saw this and I was like, ooh, you know, I'm not a style expert or anything, but... Uh, it looks really cool, and I kind of kind of like the build and look of it. Uh, the other thing to note is that this is uh, basically sporting the same frame rate as you get out of a GH4. Uh, it's a good focus system, and we have 4K shooting. So uh, $1,100, $1,200-ish camera, not bad for what we're looking at. The next camera on the line from Panasonic, and they announced two at this round, and this one actually I am excited about. Uh, but first, Mitch, point-and-shoot cameras, are they hot or not? Uh-oh, Mitch, you're muted, man. What happened here? That's weird. Am I here? Yeah, you're here, Mitch. I muted to cough, but I unmuted a minute ago, and so, anyway. Ah, no problem. Now I forgot where I was. Okay, so the question um, to you was, point-and-shoot cameras, hot or not? Oh. Uh, for, for the plan 5d market, not, uh, I typically think that most people aren't excited now either. That's a very confusing segment at this point in life, because do you use your phone or do you, you know, do you buy a point and shoot? My kids used to have point and shoots, but they, they won't touch them anymore. So they'd rather just use their iPhone. Cause they have that with them all the time. Now, what about. If your point and shoot is also your like video camera. So, you know, in the past we used to buy like a little uh, handy cam or something like that to film your kids running around and then you had a separate camera. But now if you combine that all into a single device with a flip out screen and everything else, does that make it more attractive? Not to me. Uh, typically, I think I'm going to shoot family video stuff with my iPhone now. I don't need 4K, it gives me the flip out screen. Uh, it gives me dead gun good video capabilities. My, I've got several of those old video cameras sitting over here on the shelf, and they never get touched. 
So, man, you're really taking yeah. the wind out of my sails here. Okay, Sorry. well, I'm excited <laughs> about it. This is the Panasonic FZ300, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen there uh, for the listeners. This is basically a 25 to 600 millimeter focal range, all at f2.8. It's a 12 megapixel sensor. It provides 4K shooting internally at 30 frames and 24 frames per second. It's got a flip out screen. This is everything somebody would need to just go out and start shooting. Uh, both video and doing photography all in a single package. And the super zoom range is very attractive to me. I I like the idea of being able to get 600 millimeter focal range out of a point-and-shoot camera like this. And the price, $597 for this guy. Now, there are some downsides. The audio input on this, I believe, is a 2.5 millimeter instead of a 3.5 millimeter, which is a little little weird, but if you have an adapter, uh, yeah, basically you just use a tiny cable to a medium-sized cable to get to 3.5 millimeter. That used to be a popular thing uh-huh. to do on old uh, video cameras. They would put a tinier jack on there to save space. So that is one downside. Uh, but otherwise, man, it's got 5-axis hybrid autofocus and 4K shooting, and it's only 597 Wow, that sounds great. I am excited. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Um, it depends. I mean, it really depends upon your needs, right? If you're wanting the additional range of the zoom, obviously something like an iPhone doesn't have that. The old camcorders used to have that. It used to zoom in all the time. So you have to zoom with your feet with something like an iPhone, which typically most people don't do. And you end up you know, our eyes perceive more zoom than the camera does. So people like sitting in the back of the room that think they're getting, you know, they're filming their kids event or something. Yeah. We used to zoom in. Right. So it depends upon what the kind of thing that you're looking at. I mean, you see people now with the iPad right in the back of the room. So <laughs> uh, they're, they're perfectly willing to, to, keep that and use that as their archive of their family history. So if you're wanting more than what you get with an iPad or an iPhone, then obviously something like this would be very attractive. Well, for me, the price makes this like the perfect vacation camera. Right. So if you think about it, or, you know, if you have that nephew or niece or whatever that wants to get into filmmaking and you don't want to lend them an expensive camera, maybe you buy something like this for Christmas for them. And it's all in one. It gives them a little more to play with and get started with photography in general. And they can kind of figure out what 25 to 600 at f2.8 means. Uh, The only weird thing about this guy, well, not the only weird thing, but one of the weird (laughs) things about this guy is that it's got a a half-inch sensor as opposed to an inch sensor. So these last uh, few rounds of 4K cameras we've been seeing coming out have a 20-megapixel a one-inch sensor made by Sony. Uh, this has a 12.1-megapixel half-inch MOS sensor, which is just a CMOS sensor. I don't know why they call it a MOS sensor, um, but that's a little bit smaller, so your low-light capability is going to be reduced because of that. You're also going to have a different depth of field than you'd get out of those one-inch cameras or the Micro Four Thirds cameras, so F2.8 may not be as valuable to you mm-hmm. on this as it would be on the RX100. Uh, the other thing to think about, and Mitch and I were talking about this pre-show, uh, post-focus. Mitch, what do you know about this? Oh, sure. You throw it to me when you're the guy that did all the reading about this post-focus. Great. Thanks a lot. I know nothing. 
you you told me about it just before the show started and I you added it to the show notes. So there you go. Throw me under the bus. Thanks. Okay, so Post Focus <laughs> is basically uh, Panasonic's sort of after-you-shoot focusing system. Uh, they promised to add this as a firmware update to all of their current line of cameras. And what they're doing with it Inclu- is... I'm sorry, does that include the GH4? I believe it does. According to the press releases, the way I understood it is that they would start issuing these out to the rest of their line in the uh, third quarter or fourth quarter of 2015 and into the 2016 range. So I think it will be coming for the GH4. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't with the sensor that they're using and the uh, you know processing that they're using. Basically what they're doing is they're shooting 4K video at 30 frames per second, but they're catching, capturing still images as opposed to video. And they're doing that across the focal range so that in post you can change your focal points uh, depending on what you want in focus and out of focus. Now, if you think about how that works, that's not yeah. going to be very useful for you know shooting children running around in your house or you know anything that's moving even remotely fast because you're shooter shooting it over a second. So that's a second long set of exposures with different focal lengths. And if the object doesn't remain fixed, it's going to be kind of tricky to pick it out and get it in focus. So this feature is really more beneficial to people that are shooting like landscape or, you know, buildings or anything that's stationary, right? Well, let me, let me ask you, cause I, again, I'm just reading this, um, we talk about 4K in this press release, but but we're we're talking about fo- photos, right? We're not talking about video here. That's correct. So, so we say 4K, but we're not talking video. We're talking about photos. So they're doing a burst, and they're they're virtually zooming focus, right? So that allows you to pick the best one that you want with the best focus. After the fact. Yeah, so it's using its capability to capture 3840 by 2160 4K frames, and it's capturing 30 to 50 of those as it slowly moves through the focus range of the lens. So it's basically changing the focal point and then taking a shot, changing the focal point, taking a shot, and it's doing that for however many steps it decides in between, you know, infinite focus and the closest focus. Right. And then those images can be sorted through in order to change your focus point. Okay. So that's why it makes it somewhat simple to implement in firmware. Because I was thinking that initially we were talking about some kind of fancy-ass video allowing you to change the focus of the video. But we're talking about stills. Yeah, and this is not to be confused with Lytro's system, which uses... A multi-point light and like mirrors and some other weird stuff in order to bring in all the focal lengths and then change it in post in one shot. Uh, that's a completely right. different technology. This is like the poor man's Lytro, where you know <laughs> it's just like, oh hey, I can shoot thirty frames of of photos in a second. Why don't I do that and then make everyone a different focal distance? You know, so. Right. It's kind of an interesting feature, but it's not really something that's going to be practical for, you know, a people shooting people in any kind of moving situation or anything that moves, really. It, it's more probably for landscape photographers, but the problem I have with that is what do you use it for with landscape? Because you're not going to, 
if you're going to set your camera down and, and take a beautiful landscape shot, you're not going to want to sh- you shoot it at a low resolution for one. And you're not going to be messing around with this because you're going to know what you want in focus. Your landscape isn't moving. You have tons of time to like set it up, pick your focus point and everything else. This seems more of a gimmick than anything else, but maybe I'm misinterpreting it. it you, can you think of any practical uses for this that would just make it amazing? Well, I, I find it interesting that uh, kind of somewhat similar. We used to I talked to Vincent Laferre about this uh, two or three years ago, and I'm throwing names. Do you know Vincent Laferre? I do. <laughs> okay, good. Um, one of the topics of conversation several years ago was shooting 4K video in order to extract an awesome high detail still, right? Okay. And to be able to pick focus. So they would talk about shooting a model, for example, and to shoot video with like a red in order to extract this amazing, awesome in-focus image. And I said, that sounds fantastic, Vincent, but who is going to sit there and look through each individual frame of five seconds worth of video, right? I mean, you're typically not going to do it for very long, but five seconds of video at 24 frames a second gives you 100 images. So that's a huge burst to go looking through. If there is some technology that allows you to quickly look at all of those, and I've, I've seen some hint or some discussion of like, an, like and I think some of the, some of the uh, smartphones are starting to do this where they actually shoot video and then they analyze each image of the video to pull out the most in-focus still image in there. So that you don't have to, I mean, if you have to go through 30 images to try to pick the one that's the best, who's going to do that, right? You want some technology to do that for you. Yeah. I don't uh, see it being used very often. On the Samsung uh, Galaxy S6, I believe, it has a feature where I think it's like smile detection. So it'll right. it'll shoot a burst of video when you're taking pictures with multiple people, and then it'll do head swaps and change out little bits and pieces in the final image to give you the picture that it thinks where everybody is smiling. And actually, right. uh, uh, Google's photo system, their assistant, is doing that for some of mine as well. I've, I've shot burst mode on a few things, and like it's generating brand new photos out of the burst mode and saying, like, hey, here's a picture where everybody's happy, you know, or like, here's a picture where we fixed it for you. Auto awesome, right. you know? Um, and that, that kind of stuff is, is incredible, good technology that is useful. Um, simple bursts like this, I don't know, unless there's some way of processing all those images uh, and making a better result. And it, and that's the same way the smartphone software is also like being able to eliminate somebody from a photo, right? That walks behind or something you can, because they're shooting several stills, if not in a, in a video form, you can remove objects from the background easily. Yeah, now the question I have about this, and I wasn't able to find an answer, is shooting uh, 30 frames per second at 4K for this solution, are we getting raw images out of those 30 frames, or are we just getting JPEG? And the other question I I was wondering is, is Panasonic going to include some sort of post-focus processing system, or 
uh, turn this into some kind of easy to use file format that you can open up like you're talking about. Uh, right. In the demos that they're showing online, it's like they, it shows you change focus from one point to another, uh, sort of like you do in Lytro software. But, uh, you know, that's not something that you'll probably be able to do in camera, I don't think. So there's got to be more to it than what we're finding out right now. Uh, yeah, it, it it would have to be some sort of post-processing tool that that works magic for me as opposed to doing it myself. Uh, this feature is going to be available in both the GX8 as well as the FZ300, as well as the rest of Canasonic, or Panasonic's newer lineup. So be looking for that, uh, says third quarter, maybe fourth quarter, all the way into 2016 for release of this particular feature. So when we get our hands on it, we'll start playing around with it. Now... Moving on to something a little more fun, a little well, more wait wacky. A wait, oh. wait, 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 wait. Time out. Time, Time out. out. Weren't you going to discuss this uh, dual sensor, dual IS something on this camera? Oh, yeah, or, you're right. I completely forget forgot that, about that. Because I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, so the GX8 has a new type of focus stabilization. Uh, in video mode, what they're doing, they've got... Um, a you know Panasonic sells IS on their on their lenses, so like you can get the twelve to thirty five millimeter f two eight lens, and it has an IS system built in. But they're doing an extra bit here, where if you shoot at ten eighty p, they're going to digitally stabilize the image as you're shooting. So you're getting the IS from your lens itself, and then you're getting an extra level of stabilization by basically jumping pixels around the sensor at 1080p. It's huh? it's a little weird, <laughs> uh, and it can't be done at 4K because uh, unlike uh, Olympus, Olympus basically moves the sensor around physically with little tiny right. gyros. Uh, Panasonic is not doing that. They're doing it digitally with the number of pixels available on the sensor itself. So the idea is that you only shoot with Panasonic lenses that have IS built in, and then you use this feature to stabilize video as you're walking around or whatever. And the reason they can sort of brag about this is because Olympus's feature uh, camera only shoots 1080p, and the... Uh, features available for 1080p mode on Panasonic cameras. So it's sort of a jab back at Olympus's uh, image stabilization because people are really excited about that. Right. The problem I have with this is that they're basically trying to lock you in to Panasonic's ecosystem. One of the great things about Micro Four Thirds cameras is that you have the option to get Olympus lenses. You can buy Voigtlander lenses. You can buy Panasonic lenses. You, you have a a rather large plethora of lens companies to select from and you know upgrade your camera, get whatever you want. But with this sort of feature, they're trying to say, well, if you want this, you need to buy Panasonic glass with your Panasonic camera, and then you'll have this other feature. Otherwise, you're SOL, buddy, and you might as well go somewhere else. So, so virtually, if I, if I understand what you said, Final Cut 10, and I'm pretty sure that Premiere Pro has a stabilization that you can do in post, right? Where they yeah warp stabilization, sh shaky cam and make it stable. So what Panasonic is doing is doing that inside the camera as you're shooting. Exactly. Right? Okay. Interesting. Yes. And and it means that the theoretically they're throwing away some pixels, right? But that's okay. Well, sort of. Okay, so. When you shoot on a Panasonic camera, 
um, you have the option to crop into the sensor a little bit. Right. And it's required if you shoot at 4K because the aspect ratio um, in certain modes means that you're right. going to lose a little bit. So your crop factor is not just 2. It's like 2.15 or 2.2. So with a 1080p image, they can bring it in just a little bit. So it changes your crop factor by, um, you know, 0.3 or 0.2. And then you basically have wiggle room around the rest of the sensor to move your image around. So you don't have right. to give up pixels per se. And the camera... If it has a gyroscope that can, you know, sense leveling and everything else, it can on the fly choose the pixels it needs to choose in order to move the image around accordingly. Or the other way they could accomplish this is shoot 4K and then warp stabilize somehow on the back end as it's going through processing before it gets recorded to 1080p on the memory card right. itself. Right. Um, well, I don't know which I trickery they're using. <laughs> Well, obviously, if you do it in camera, then it's going to be great for those people who need to do something quick, right? But you would typically want to do your own control of your warp stabilization in post-processing because that way you get to tweak it and do it the way you want, right? Now, this might be better, though, than doing warp stabilization in post. If you've ever tried warp stabilization, for one, uh, if you're shooting at 30 frames per second, it can get a little wacky. Uh, two, processing power on it is extremely taxing on your system. Uh, warp stabilizing in like a 30-second clip can set you back an hour or more worth of render time, uh, or more, I say, because if it's very complicated and tracking a lot of things, it could be two or three hours, depending on the system that you're working on. So if this can do this instantaneously, that is a huge burden taken off in post. Uh, also... As much as we love warp stabilization and people show demos of it being amazing, it's a hit or miss tool. Like right. you, you do not get that shot that you see online a warp stabilized every time. You get that like one out of seven times if you're lucky. And I'm wondering though that a this this camera has to have a lot of processing power in it, right, in order to make that happen. And B, is it going to be hit or miss like warp stabilization is? I don't know. You know, I, we have to we have to wonder what it's going to look like. I think they're uh, getting a little bit of a boost in benefit because of the IS in the lens itself. So right. that there's less correction that needs to be done in the camera. So that could be part of the way that they're reducing the processor requirements uh, for this dual IS system. But it is really right. interesting technology. Um, yeah. As soon as yeah. I find out more, I'll probably write an article on it. I just uh, I want to read more about the technology behind it and what they're trying to accomplish and how they're doing it in the camera. All right. It's it's cool. You know, it's kind of yeah. sad that it's locked into Panasonic lenses, but then, you know, Olympus doesn't provide image stabilization in their lenses, and Panasonic is pretty much the only one with IS in lens. So what do you get? You get that. Right. On that note, okay, now I'm going to transition to something fun <laughs> and a little more, well, not interesting, but a little more hipster, I think, is the term I would like to use here. This guy, Mitch, I don't know if you've seen this yet. Uh, this is the, uh, man, I even wrote hipster in the no yeah. show notes here. Uh, yeah. Let me see, how do you pronounce that? Lamenti CS1, is, am I saying that right? Luminati, maybe? Luminati. Luminati CS1. Uh, this is a phone case for your iPhone, and I don't know why I couldn't pronounce Luminati today, but uh, <laughs> brain not work right, that gives okay. you a Super 8-style case 
for your iPhone. Uh, they're using a mirror in the back to bring it, in, uh, bring in images into your camera, and your phone actually sits sideways in this device. Now we're looking at a price of one ninety nine. Now, Mitch, you were talking about your iPhone being the tool of choice earlier. Would you use something kind of? weird and goofy like this in order to accomplish uh, your family photos and videos? No. In terms of doing my family photos and videos, no. I'm, and I'm, I'm cur- very curious to see how this thing really works because they're doing all kinds of mirrors and trickery here, like you said in the notes about taking a portion of the viewfinder to spit it out backwards. I mean, that, this is just really bizarre looking. Uh, it also, I, I don't, I just, I know I would, it would be fun to use for some projects and stuff like that, but I'm not going to use it all the time. I'd rather have just my iPhone. Uh, so to describe I, this a little bit better for, uh, audio listeners here, there's an eyepiece that basically goes up against your screen. And the eyepiece has a windowed video of the video that you're shooting uh, on screen. And then it uses a mirror to reflect that into your eye so you can see in bright sunlight what's on your screen. Uh, then it uses but, a but mirror. But, but you can't see the whole screen, right? Well, no, it's windowing it and it's making it smaller. So it's basically your oh, resolution. Gonna... Okay. Yeah. So your I'm resolution sorry, on gonna... your iPhone is, you know, retina. I don't know what the the pixel count is, but it's very high. So what they're doing is they're taking the full video image that's coming in and they're creating a tiny little box on your screen. And then that is going up against the viewfinder and being reflected in your eye. And then it's also on the front of the camera as well, or on the front of your phone as well. So you have controls like start, stop and uh, playback when you turn it sideways. And then they've used the one switch on your iPhone in order to start and stop recording. And they've included a physical button at the front of the this little case in order to accomplish that. Then for the lens, they're doing the same mirror trickery. They have a mirror uh, bringing the lens image in and then reflecting it into the video portion of your phone. So your phone sits sideways in the device and then the mirror is bringing it in, and it's also bringing the video to your eye via that windowed square. So that sounds really complicated, and it, it, it is. Um, <laughs> now that I've said it out loud, I'm somewhat confused by the whole thing. But uh, yeah, so both mostly <laughs> it's software. And actually, they do have a good picture here. Let me uh, show that for those of you watching. Uh, here, right here, kind of explains it better than maybe me wandering through it. This right here, you can see is a little windowed section of everything that's on screen. And that's where the eyepiece actually goes against your phone. So So those of you who are listening in audio only, that's in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. There's a tiny version of the entire screen. So it's like a postage stamp picture-in-picture thing. Yeah, now I will have links to this in the show notes. I'm looking through this, and, you know, the guy that's explaining, you need to use this, has a curly mustache and a, a big beard and, uh, you know, like really screams hipster. And as hipster, I look, yeah. it's cool. You know, I like the idea of shooting Super 8. I don't know if you've ever done that as a kid, but uh, uh, we were able to shoot, you know, three or four minute little clips with a yep. Super 8 wind-up camera when I was young. 
and they're cool to look at and they're interesting. And this is sort of giving you that same style. Uh, they've also added uh, processing to your video in post, which is basically like sepia tone, black and white, some high contrast modes. So, you know, Instagram style filters for your video. And the video that they have on the Kickstarter campaign is shot 100% with uh, this case. So go check that out if you want to see what kind of quality they're getting out of this thing. It's only $199. And... It seems a little nicer than the giant, uh, you know, tablet cases that they have with a microphone and a, you know, lens adapter and stuff like that. So at, at least it's smaller profile, right? Right. And and it would also remove the problem where you're holding your iPhone up to people without a case on it. And they say, you're shooting stills, right? As opposed because they would know you were shooting video. This would not typically look anything like a still camera so people would be moving as opposed to standing still going <laughs> and you're like i'm shooting video and i for those of you listening i'm looking really dorky with the peace signs and stuff uh, the other thing to note on this is that it will eliminate vertical video syndrome. So it's forcing oh, you to have your your camera, uh, you know, at the right angle as opposed to having it straight up and down. There's nothing more frustrating than you know a windowed up and down video that that shows up on YouTube or whatever else. And have you seen have you seen Periscope? However, uh, yeah, a Periscope and Meerkat, right? Both of those it, are the like stream your... into vertical. Yeah, is it locked into vertical? <laughs> Right now, Periscope is, they're talking about implementing a landscape video mode, but I mean, you can turn your phone sideways and you can actually do Periscope videos that way, but all of the text and the smiley hearts and all that stuff is still oriented the other way. So right now it's almost every person shooting Periscope is doing vertical video, huh? which kills a lot of, a lot of people who love yeah, vertical video is very frustrating <laughs> to me. But that's something I've yelled at my nephews and nieces about multiple yeah. times. Like, seriously, yeah. guys, hold your phones like this, you know. Um, okay, now, speaking of holding your phone, I see down here you put a gun phone case <laughs> in the show yeah. notes here. What is this about? It it It's just, it was humorous. I ran into this on uh, Facebook yesterday. Somebody actually did a video about how stupid it is if you happen to buy an iphone case that looks like a gun and the police shoot you dead oh, <laughs> it's your man. fault <laughs> but you know and it, it was rather entertaining video and i just thought it fit in since you were doing the iphone case that looks like a camera the bad choice is getting an iphone case that looks like a handgun because somebody's gonna shoot you so don't do it oh just man bad idea <laughs> yeah that doesn't even look practical. How do you get that into your pocket? Well, you don't. The people that were have shown on the videos, they put it like in their back, in their back, in, behind them with, you know, like. Oh, like so it looks like they're gun. hiding a gun. Yeah. So, so yeah, you're walking down the street and somebody says, gun, handgun. She's, you know, it's like stupid. Don't do it. Don't buy it. It's not funny. It's not cute. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> I don't know. I'm laughing kind of right now thinking about it. Okay, that was weird. Uh, moving yeah. on down the line, we've got uh, the Camera Goat. Uh, this is a rather expensive uh, camera slider designed by a uh, filmmaker. 
I want to say out of New York. And I'm looking at this right now, and I'll go ahead and show the screen. It's basically a set of legs that can be adjusted at any angle or position so that when you're using your slider on rocky areas or in weird locations where you have multiple feet that need to go really high up in the air or really into deep crevasses, uh, that's what it's for. Uh, the design itself looks interesting. Pricing, 2000 to $3,000. I don't know if this is really for everybody. There's no uh, belt system on this, and uh, I don't see a counterweight of any kind. Uh, so, I don't know. Mitch, what do you think about this? Do we need another slider in our life? Uh, the interesting thing about it was the legs, right? The legs are, were the most interesting to me. Uh, I'm going to throw a name at you. Bruce Dorn is Canon Explorer of Light. Okay. Uh, Bruce Dorn was running a company called IDC Photo for a while where they created sliders and a couple of things, uh, handheld gimbal stuff, not gimbal, but handheld sh single shooter kind of stuff. Uh, he's decided to move on and is not doing that anymore. But one of the tips he used to tell me was when he travels, he would take like a dolly, like the center section of this goat thing with wheels, right? Yeah. And he would take tripods because he's always going to take tripods with him when he travels. And what he would do, what he does typically is he goes to Home Depot and he buys pvc pipe or 16 gauge or whatever pipes right so when he travels he doesn't need to have this massively long slider with him he just goes to home depot and buys the pipes and has the dolly with the wheels on it and he puts the pipes on the tripods and that's what makes his slider kit is doesn't cost him two thousand dollars to get that to travel right he did have to buy the slider with the wheels but he could use any kind of piping and he could make really long slides and he could make short slides and then when he gets ready to go home he just says hey does anybody want this pipe or he throws it away now uh, i think uh, a company the company that made that uh, really cute pocket uh crane also makes something called the red rocket which right. is uh, an adapter that does the same thing like it's in pieces and uh, clamp pieces to use any kind of conduit in order uh -huh. to create a slider. Now, I ran over while Mitch was talking and grabbed this. When I have to really travel light, this is just a simple skateboard dolly. There you go. And they're like 80 or $100. Uh, this one's made by Canova, the, one of the first companies to add uh, you know, roller bearings to their sliders. And it's really cheap. You can mount your head right on here. And all you need is a flat surface. So a lot of times, you know, you can go buy a plank from Home Depot and it's the same story. Like you spend 15 bucks on a piece of wood and you lay it down and you roll this over and you're done. You know, it's, it's right. really simple to do. Uh, if you need to roll around on the ground, you can use a piece of laminate or um, a piece of plastic. They sell large chunks of plastic in most of those places. And it's not going to give you a huge move, but it's enough of a move to add motion without going crazy. <laughs> On that note, though, I also want to say, um, you know, I feel like sliders are turning into this uh, horribly overused, uh, almost cliche thing these days where uh, you see videos now where almost every single shot is a slider right. shot and it becomes sort of obnoxious. But, you know, 
for something easy, this is really cheap, really lightweight, and you can throw it in your luggage without taking up much space. Well, and that's where the plug here, I'll give you a plug for like the Vincent LaFerre tour that he did last year, uh, where he was talking specifically for eight hours about camera movement uh, and the emotion behind camera movement and why you do particular moves. That kind of stuff is vital for those people who think everything, every shot has to have a movement to it. And you have to think about why, as opposed to just, like you said, throwing in a slider move for everything. People learn. If you want that class, Vincent Lafre is still selling that class. You can buy it on DVD. But find ways to learn how to move your camera to evoke the emotion that you want and don't just slide a move, uh, slide a move, throw a move in just because you think the camera has to move. Yeah, I myself actually just use certain rules for uh, slider use. Um, if I need to present something that's behind something else, obviously I use a slider. If I want to show extreme motion, I've always been in love with the Hitchcock zoom where you yeah. slide in and you zoom out at the same time so that it throws the background into a weird pitched focus. Uh, and shots like that, There's, I have a, a small list that I keep with me that I'm like, oh, okay, here I can use a slider shot. Otherwise, no, no sliders, we're done. You know, and same with <laughs> shaky cam handheld. There's, I have special rules for myself that I've set that I only use handy cam when it's a reaction, first person point of view. I hate the whole like shaky cam business in general. I don't like using it unless it really adds to what I'm shooting. And you know, it's great if you're in a fight scene and you are the perspective of the person getting hit and the fist comes in and you're hand holding it and you're, you're shaking around. That's great. But, uh, you know, if you're just like, Oh, here, let me present a room to you. And you're like shaking the camera around. It's, it's awful. And it like, it kind of throws me out of, uh, well, there was a, a movie recently. Um, shoot, it's escaping me now, but it was a found footage film. And the whole thing was shaky cam. And it was, I mean, I know it's found footage. I know it's supposed to be like, Oh yeah, they shot this with their phone or whatever, but it, I can't watch it. it. It makes me sick watching it because it's just shaky cam all over the place. And the plot could be amazing. It could be a great film, but shaky cam just takes me completely out of it. Uh, Amen. I, am I the only one that feels that way? No. Or is it... And and believe it or not, <gasps> my 17 year old daughter is now very sensitive to shaky cam. And she's like, when she starts watching something and it's shaky, she just leaves the room. She's like, I cannot watch that. And, and I, I will sit and watch it, but it annoys the hell out of me, just like you. I, there are certain people that just think they have to have shaky cam in everything, and if it's not helping the story, like you said, like you described, in certain cases it makes a lot of sense, but don't use it for everything. It's hor horrible. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and there are, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying never use shaky cam, because, uh, right. for example, if you're in a war scene and there's a bunch of bombs going off over the place, you know, that's a perfect use for a shaky cam. You want things to be moving around. That jaunts you and throws you into, like, the scene that's happening in front of you. But exactly. when it's just like, hey, here's Joe, and he's standing here, like, about to go fishing, and it's shaky cam, th that's extremely frustrating, and it's poor filmmaking. And, you know, I've even seen people set up stabilizers and rigs and everything and then add an extra device to it that made it shaky cam so they, <laughs> they spent all this money stabilizing the camera you know putting on a full vest and everything and then they put a little shaker on there to give you a shaky cam at the end w what w what are you doing you're killing me here you know yeah 
That that actually reminds me of watching the behind the scenes for the first Star Trek movie that J.J. Abrams did. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but in the behind the scenes, there's a very specific, I don't know, four or five minute segment where J.J. Abrams describes how he was the only guy that could get the camera to shake the way he wanted it in certain scenes. And so he would stand behind the cameraman and push on the camera with his hand to make it work the way he wanted. And and he tried several other people on set to do it, and it was just not working. So he ended up behind the camera guy through a whole lot of the scenes of the very first Star Trek. because And that's the one that had all of the lens flares yeah, in yeah. it. And, you know, all, all that. But it was fascinating to me to watch him talk about physically pushing on the camera in a certain way because it, he and he was the only way that we could do it the way he wanted so he's he spent much of the movie right behind the cameraman pushing the camera to make it shake the way he wanted it yeah fascinating i know but... we're diving off off topic here but one <laughs> of the there's two things i wanted to kind of talk about while we're on this subject one is commentary tracks if you ever want to find out about how a film was made you know the commentary tracks are great to listen to there's tons of easter eggs in commentary tracks telling you like hey oh yeah on this shot we did this because you know we couldn't get it to work this way and you start thinking about that you absorb it and you use it in the future when you're on your own shoot the other thing i want to mention is tmc they have these great film study courses that are free and they cover, you know, film noir as their last one. So every week they would show one film noir movie and then they would do a discussion panel on it that would talk about, you know, how it was filmed, what techniques they used, how it was put together, why they shot it a certain way in order to, you know, encourage certain emotions in the viewer and so on. And those sort of analysis, well, they sound sort of touchy-feely and a little bit, you know, wacky. They really help you think about your composition. And... I know there's regular rules like, you know, you, you have thirds and everything else, but sometimes you want to go beyond that. And I shot a noir film uh, last year, uh, a 20 minute short, and it was almost 100 percent dutched. And we discussed this pre-shoot. And if you're not familiar with dutched, it means that your your camera is angled either one direction or the other. And the discussion ended up being, well, OK, anytime the villain is on the set, you want it to be an approaching Dutch. And anytime it's the person that's being victimized, you want it to be a reproachful Dutch. And so we went through the entire shoot that way. And at first I thought we were overthinking it and it was going to get stupid. But then I watched it all the way through uh, just last week and we did a great job. I loved how it turned out, you know, like that whole, because we discussed it and figured out how we wanted to frame everything ahead of time. It made it really interesting to look at. And I mean, maybe we went overboard with the Dutch angle, but right. by doing that, you know, you've created a really interesting piece that you don't see very often. Is that film online somewhere that we could watch? I'd love to see that. I will link it to you. Actually, you know what? I can throw it in the show notes. I don't know if I'm supposed to, I don't have the rights to share because it's going out on a DVD compilation. But, um, yeah, I think I can – I'll talk to my producer and see if I can put it on. I'll link it to you anyway, Mitch, so you can watch it. Uh, well, okay, good. Uh -oh. I, I love being getting all this inside info. But that I, that's the kind of stuff that most people don't typically get. The still motion guys, uh, Patrick Moreau and the still motion team that are doing the Muse program, which is a very expensive uh, filmmaking class. They really know how to tell the story through lensing and 
Dutch, things like Dutch, like you're talking about. So if you really want to accelerate yourself, learn the why behind movements. Don't just throw them in because you think it's cool. Yeah. And plan your shots too, guys. Plan your shots. Yeah. Uh, uh, now yeah. we kind of went way off course. I want to get back to this uh, camera goat really quick. It's $3,000. It's very expensive. 2, yeah. 2000 to $3,000. Um, I think there's three models. Mitch, is that what we determined? No. Anyway, the point is the legs are really cool. Everything else is kind of like, meh. So if we could figure out a way to adapt like big long legs to other sliders, that would be great. Someone do that for me and I will pay you 300 bucks (laughs) instead of $3,000. That sound good? Yeah, perfect. All right. Um, Last thing here. Or actually, I've got two more things in the show notes. Uh, let's see what time. Oh, yeah, we got time. Okay, so one, uh, we've got one comment that came in, and this is actually a very good one. A uh, comment? Yeah, this came in from Stuck It One, and he just wanted to let us know that while Olympus does mention open as a label in their description of their Olympus Air, it's not actually open source. The API for both the Sony uh uh, little can cameras as well as the Olympus Air uh, are basically using a web portal with uh, hooks in HTML in order to access that. So that's why we're getting delays out of it and everything else. Uh, the hooks that are available in the API are all that you're allowed to use. So they're not really open per se. They're kind of just uh, sort of allowing you to get access to some stuff. And since it's a web portal that you're using, you're connecting via Wi-Fi and then you're using HTTP in order to uh, send information back and forth between the camera and your phone, which explains why we're getting lags and and other issues. Um, There are two links to the Sony API as well as the Olympus API in the show notes, so you can check that out. Thanks, Stuck at One, for sending that in. That's very good information. Uh, The next thing on the list here is the Speed Booster XL. Mitch, I pulled this article from Planet 5D, so I thought I'd let you talk about this, man. Oh, man. I hate it when you do that, especially when I've been busy all week looking at uh, creating a new website and all this other stuff for my other business. I, I did find it interesting that uh, Speed Booster has, has found a niche in the market. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Speed Booster is really an adapter that has a lens on the inside. So it's not just a, an adapter that's making one lens fit on a different kind of mount. It's trying to take the, the light that's coming in and conform it in a slightly different way. There are people who are, and DJ's showing one. If you're yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hold this up so you can get a demonstration of what this looks like. Uh, the speed booster units, and we've talked about them in the past, it's basically a uh, focal reducer. So it takes the light that's coming in and reduces it to a smaller focus point. So you can see that I'm smaller this way and I'm bigger this way. It's because uh, the light is being focused onto a smaller sensor. So... With uh, the old generation, which I have here, and this is the fancier one that uh, Mitch is talking about, uh, I can actually use this to reduce by, what, about uh, 0.8. So we're getting, like, APS-C size on a uh, micro four-thirds body. This one's more advanced, though, isn't it? The new one is is definitely more advanced and therefore more expensive, right? Yeah, $650, bucks, man. Uh, so they're, they're basically giving you taking a, a, a larger crop factor and it's 
and it's taking your micro four thirds and turning it into something more equivalent, as you say in the show notes, to a Canon 1D or 1DX or 1DC. Um, there, there are fanatics that will tell you that the technology that's in here and the way they're doing it is just not right, quote unquote. It's just, it's just a little bit fake. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, there are fanatics that will say, if you're shooting 4K video and you are gonna, your end target is going to be 1080, that you can, you know, take 4K and you can crop so that you can take, do a wide angle scene and then crop into the 1080 uh, and and virtually get, you know, a, a close up with a wide angle and a close up or a medium shot in the same segment, right? So, but the fanatics will say, well, in order to do that with real cameras and real lenses, you're either going to physically move or you're going to switch lenses, which is going to give you different parallax and things are just going to look slightly different, right? So you've got the, it's like pixel peepers, right? <laughs> you know, some people just look at the end, end result of the video and say it looks awesome. And other people are absolutely paranoid because it's not, hundred percent true really so this has detractors there are some people who say the speed booster is cheating and it's not really giving you the same kind of depth of field that you would get with the larger sensor which is true it's all true the question is does it do what you need it to do in order to within your budget in order to help you make your story better uh, so whether or not a $700, $650 item, you know, you could technically just go out and rent. If you need a, a larger sensor camera, why not just go out and rent one for your particular shoot as opposed to buying a speed booster that's going to get you. It all depends upon what you need for your shoot and what the look and feel is. And if this does what you need it to do, then go buy it. Yeah, mine, I don't use it nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, I've got yeah. uh, the last generation speed booster here. And I do this thing a lot of times, and I've talked about it before, where I half press to autofocus and then I start filming. And right. because the speed booster uh, eliminates the ability to really autofocus, it's kind of uh, an issue for me because I'm lazy and I don't want to manually focus <laughs> all the time. So that's one thing. The other thing that I have in mind, and I don't know if this is a common problem or not, but... You hear that? Mine no. rattles. Like, I don't know what's loose on it or how it got loose, but uh, it if you're moving the camera around, you get, like, little clicking sounds out of it. And that's very frustrating if you have a mic that's close by. It also right. does some sort of strange things to the image, which makes me suspect that maybe the lens element floats a little bit on this. And uh -oh. I, I don't know if I just got a bad copy. I've been using this off and on for about seven months now. And that rattling thing developed sometime in the last uh, three months or so. So it's just, uh. it's a very expensive item. I think I paid like 500 bucks for this guy. And I don't right. find enough value out of it to make it worthwhile. Especially when you can go out and buy a very decent primes for, uh, for a Micro Four Thirds camera for like 250 bucks. $649, that could get you possibly three primes for your GH4 as opposed to this guy. And then you still need to have Canon glass to, to get this to work. So it's not like you're buying an actual lens right. or anything. 
right? The one thing that I thought was interesting, um, and I was, I don't see it on the, sh the image on the show notes. Uh, I saw it somewhere, but it says exclusively for a GH4, but you can also use it with other cameras. And I'm like, well, okay, is it exclusive for a GH4 or is it not? You guys are contradicting yourself with your own, your own marketing words, which bothered me. Well, there are other micro four thirds manufacturers. So I suppose you could use this on an Olympus body or, you know, anything sure. else. But uh, uh, I wonder if maybe the aperture control system or something like that hasn't been flushed out yet. Uh, a lot of times with uh, speed boosters, adapters in general, they'll have a lens list of compatibility. They'll also have some other things that they've had problems with. And I right. think on the generation that I have, um, it worked okay on like black magic cameras, but there was a model that they recommended that only worked on Blackmagic cameras but did not work on GH4s. Uh, it also had some issues where certain Canon lenses wouldn't work correctly. And I think there were even a couple of Olympus bodies that gave you weird errors, and they had notes about that in this generation at least. Right. Well, it does say it's it's in the press release that they put put out, and we have it on Planet 5D, which is where I saw it. It says the speed blah, 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 is designed exclusively for the GH4 and other selected micro four-thirds cameras. I, I'm just nitpicking the fact that they said exclusively. <laughs> you don't say that it's exclusive for the GH4 and then say it's of and other selected micro four-thirds cameras. Exclusive means one thing. Okay? It just means one thing. And then they do go ahead and give you a list of all the different cameras that you can use it on. So that's great. But... I wish they hadn't thrown in the exclusive board. I'm just being a pain nitpicker kind of guy. Well, anyway, these um, are available on B&H uh, as well as on their, you know, that's the, okay, I got to complain about this real quick. Uh, well, you're uh -oh. nitpicking. I got a nitpick. What is the deal with uh, Metabone's host site? Because that webpage is the slowest, clunkiest website I've ever visited in this time frame. I mean, it's just like it doesn't load all the time. Images don't pop up. You can't get to like even to buy stuff. It's like a little bit difficult to get through. Uh, oh, come on, guys. Get a better host service or something because uh, that's ridiculous. Um, if you're going to buy it, it's actually easier to just go to B&H or, or to Amazon to pick these up than it is to try and go through their website because it's just so clunky and slow and yeah, I don't know what's wrong with it. Uh, so fix your site, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how we, we really feel, DJ. On that note, uh, Mitch, anything else you want to talk about before we roll out of the show? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, we are giving away a Ditto Gear Spin 360 over on Planet 5D for the next three weeks. If you want to come over and look at that, come come find out all about the Ditto Gear 360 Spin 360. All right, hold on a and second. What is that? What is? Can you tell me? I mean, is that a it's a rotating display plate or what? Yeah, basically that's what it is. It's a rotating display plate uh, to mount your camera if you want to do 360 degree spins. It's a relatively limited market. Uh, I I talk to them. I I love the guys over at Ditto Gear. They have a lot of great stuff. But when they wanted to give this away, I'm like, I don't know that so many people are going to be that excited about a product that is that exclusive. But that's what they want to do. They're also having a sale. So 
that's how they wanted to market this particular thing. But if you want to give it a, a chance to win one, it's worth 1200 bucks. Come on over to Planet 5D and enter. Now, instead of doing 360-degree uh, video shots, uh, wouldn't that be interesting to use as a display plate, like to uh, set a product on? Because it looks like it has uh, speed controls, right? So yes. you could actually vary the speed of a product rotation and film very precise rotations of like a camera on a plate or whatever. Although $1,200, I mean, I guess you can buy one of those devices for like 15 bucks on eBay. Shh, shh, shh. We're trying to make money over here. Okay, okay. On that note, Mitch, <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, I'm at a website called... And you can find me over there. And I also have the my new website. If you want to come find out what we're doing, it's called smartbusinessplanet.com. Smartplanetbusiness.com. No, smartbusinessplanet. Smartbusinessplanet.com. Okay. You. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can find me at dslrfilmnoob.com, One Lone Dork on YouTube, and, of course, dslrfilmnoob on Twitter. So be sure to hit me up there as well. This has been a great episode. Thanks for coming out, Mitch, and we will see you guys next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Bye-bye.